Amen. Um, the men that we look at today in the Gospel of Mark live their lives on purpose. We just sang about, uh, you know, wanting to adore our God, and we just sang about His glorious cause filling our hearts that we might be engaged in what He's called us to do. And uh, so what a joy it is to gather together as the called out community uh, here at FCC and then live our lives on purpose as well. So thank you, worship team, for leading us in that time of musical worship. My heart was blessed by that. So thank you for your efforts and practice and rehearsal, which is all really worship. Um, before we get into the message today, two things. One, um, uh, Debbie Barron, I think it's your birthday today. Sorry to point that out to everybody, but I just wanted to say that. I, I didn't even know that until Mike Hornstra told me. So don't blame me, blame Mike back there. He's, gig, he's the guy giggling back there, all right? And, um, and here's the other thing. Did anybody buy a boat this last week? Did anybody? I mean, that was your chance, people. I mean, the pastor told you to buy a boat. And uh, perhaps that was the best, you know, applicational point in a sermon you'll ever hear. And you guys missed it, all right? So... Anyway, if you weren't here last week, make sure you check out the live stream uh, of that or the recording of that. Um, we actually looked at these verses last week as well. We're going to look at them again today. And hopefully last week you came to understand that Jesus is a much bigger deal than you currently thought about. And that's what the point was last week. He's a, he's a really, really big deal. People from all over Israel, not just Capernaum, but all over Israel now in Mark chapter 3 are descending upon Capernaum, swarming this guy, and they were legitimately, he was legitimately concerned that he was going to be physically crushed by them. That's crazy. So that's why he says, hey, we need to get a boat. Put me out in the water so my voice can carry out because there's so many people swarming about me. I will get crushed by the needs of these people. And I think about that, that's like the modern day paparazzi that's obsessed with celebrity sightings. That's what was taking place. Like, they're all just swarming him. Like, he couldn't be contained at this point of his ministry. Everybody was curious to see who he really was. If they thought who he was really was who they thought he was. And so they moved from where they were at to get a closer look at him. But Mark tells us that the demons didn't need to wonder who he was. The demons, the unclean spirits, already knew who he was. They knew that he was the Son of God, and they were willing to shout it out loud, and they were willing to be quiet when told to be so by the Son of God, King Jesus. And so the point last week was not only is Jesus a bigger deal than you currently think, but we can't be dumber than demons, and we shouldn't be more disobedient than them as well. All right? They... They were quiet. When, when Jesus told them something, they actually obeyed. And we said that he is calling us and that we need to respond to that call as well. And probably the most stunning thing that we saw in the passage last week was when we saw that Jesus desires all of us to come to him. And this was very evident when you put chapter 3, verse 13 with chapter 3, verse 19, and you read this. And when he went up on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Think about that. Jesus desired the one who would eventually betray him, and he called him, even him, to come. Come. You can come too. 
So I think that we should all be able to discern his call, his loving call to all of our individual lives as well. Even if we betray or disobey or whatever, he's saying, hey, come, come, come. All right? So that was last week in recap. But today, once again, we're going to see just how demanding it is to be Jesus. Okay, that's a massive understatement, but it is actually pretty demanding to be Jesus. This time, he's so swarmed by people that he can't even eat, all right? But no worries, he can still meet the needs of those that are coming to him because he's going to plan to send out official emissaries equipped with his authorized teachings and his unparalleled power. And with these verses, Mark is going to be revving the engine, so to speak. We're going to see a commission taking place here that we will see put into action in chapter 6. But let's see how Mark tells the story. So open up to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to look at these verses again and make some additional comments that we didn't get to last week. Starting in verse 13. Look at what Mark says. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that that he could not, or that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, "He is out of his mind." May the Lord add His blessing to those who read and hear and then seek to obey these words. Let's pray together. God, as we look at this passage of Scripture once again, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive all that you have for us to, to learn here. And uh, Lord, there's more and more and more in this passage of Scripture that could be explored. And so I pray that you would even apply the things that aren't discussed today. But ultimately, we pray that you would be our teacher through the power of your Holy Spirit as we open up and submit to your word. God, I pray that we would be very responsive today to what you're teaching. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at this passage of Scripture again, and let's make the first point. The first point is really seen in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. It's this, he called and they came. As simple as that. He issued a call, and then people responded. He, He said, come, and then people came. So look at what Mark says. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Very simple. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. So here's the thing, people, listen, God desires you. He really, really does. You are desirable to him, even if you have a hard time believing that that could even be true. Even if you have a hard time believing 
that a holy God could desire you, it doesn't make it any less true. He really does desire you. So often we get so hung up and remember who we have been or what we might have done or what we're currently doing or even what we're planning to do. And it's really hard for us to imagine how we could be desired by a holy God, but that doesn't make it any less true. He does desire you. It says that there. If you're hearing his call, he's desiring for you to come. Think about this. If you got a problem with the fact that he might desire you because of your uncleanness, that's your problem, not his problem. He really does desire you. Sinners are the ones that are in desperate need to be saved. What does it say? Jesus Christ came into the world to save who? Sinners. <laughs> That's why he came. That's who Jesus came for. Because he desires people like you and people like me. So look at this. He calls these 12 men for, for a reason, look why, so that they might be with him. That is so important. He's like, hey, you 12, come be with me. This is the basic call to discipleship here. It's on the job, intensive, extensive, on learning, tra training, on learning how to be a human, all right? That's what discipleship is, learning how to be a human the right way. So Jesus, the perfect human, the second Adam says, hey, come be with me for some on-the-job training on how to live the way you're supposed to, the way that God intended humans to live in the first place. Jesus calls them to be with him so that as they spend intentional time following in his footsteps, they would become like him, doing what he does, loving what he loves, hating what he hates. That's what discipleship is and progressively over time we become more and more transformed into his image and these are the guys that were called to be with him and then they responded they came so that's the first point hear him calling you and then come to him and then look what mark tells us next once they came, once they heard that call and actually they, they came to him, he then appointed them and they were willing to go. He says, hear my call and come, now let me appoint you and then you need to be willing to go. So look at what he says next. He says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, so let's look at this. The call to discipleship is a very basic call. Like, hey, come be with me, learn what it's like to be a real human, right? But this is something very intentional here. This is a very specific call. We're all summoned to be with him, but we see something unique happening to this first band of followers. Mark tells us that Jesus appointed these 12 whom he also named apostles. So let's talk about that. There's very intentional wording here with the way Mark is telling the story. There's so much redemptive historical significance 
to Jesus appointing 12 apostles. Think about this. Much like God used the nation of Israel with its 12 tribes to be a blessing to the nations in the Old Testament, Jesus is going to choose his 12 and appoint them to be his emissaries that can carry out his redemptive message for the blessings of the entire world. And we'll see how they did it later on in this message. So these unique band of first followers of Jesus were unique. He appointed these guys to a very specific, unique calling. Think about this. Even the fact that, I think we got to make a big deal of the fact that Mark says, and he named them as apostles. Having the ability to name something assumes dominion and authority over that which is being named. And so Jesus is naming these guys. He's saying, you guys are going to be the sent ones. He is authoritatively creating them to be apostles, which means official emissaries of kingdom business. I'm going to send you guys out, and it's going to be a very specific, unique calling. These men were going to be the authorized agents a very special envoy of people commissioned directly by Jesus and then invested with his authority to speak on his behalf. This is a unique call. They were going to be sent out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. That's what Mark identifies. Not only will they be with him, but you're gonna go preach and you're gonna have authority. They would share about the Savior's power and then they would have the ability to demonstrate his power by overthrowing the works of the counterfeit kingdom of chaos and disorder and disobedience that the devil brought into the creation. So listen carefully. Being named an apostle by Jesus is a very specific, unique call and commission that isn't and wasn't to be repeated throughout church history. We don't have apostles walking around the earth today. We'll talk about why that is. But basically, it's because all of what Jesus has needed to communicate through these initial only apostles has been completed when the New Testament scriptures were formed and put together. So think about this. We need, to, we need to camp out on this because there's a lot of bad theology out there in very popular churches that would teach other than this. And I want to clarify what these apostles were doing. Do you know that Jesus Christ himself pre-authorized the apostolic preaching and teaching of these apostles in the upper room on the night he was betrayed? Them and only them. Listen to this. This is, this is okay, buckle up. Long train of thought here, okay? So, so hold tight, stay with it for about a, you know, a few minutes here. But this is a long train of thought, but check this out. Jesus is with these guys on the night that he was betrayed, and then he says to them in John 14 this. These things, he's communicating to them since chapter 13. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, to these 12 men. 
So Jesus is saying, look, there's more things that need to be revealed to you And there are also things that you need to remember that I've already said to you. So just hold tight for a second, guys. It's going to get really dark really soon. But hold tight until the Holy Spirit comes. And then in the next two chapters later, John 16, he says this. Look, he doubles down. He says, look, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. This is so gracious that Jesus does this. Because they have no idea what's going to happen in just a few hours. They're going to lose their minds. But he says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So here Jesus doubles down on their need to learn more from him. And he says that the way that they would come to know the things that Jesus wanted to teach them in the future was through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we're still on this train of thought. What do we know what happens in the first chapter of the book of Acts? Well, the resurrected Christ appears to these chosen apostles whom he named and he tells them, In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. My martus is the Greek. My martyrs. You're going to be martyrs. Whoa. In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, all over the place. He says, look, you are going to be martyred all over the place. You apostles will bear witness to me until your end. That's a tough call. And then what do we know in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Well, the Holy Spirit comes and enables these men, right, to preach and to bear witness about the gospel of Jesus And then their message was validated by what? Miraculous signs and enablements of the Holy Spirit. To the degree that the author of Hebrews mentions this when he writes to his audience, God also bore witness to what? To their message by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to, ding, 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 his will. Not their will, but his will to authenticate and validate their message of what they were saying. And then what do we know throughout the rest of the book of Acts? These guys carry that message of the kingdom all throughout the then known world. And as they go about doing this official apostolic kingdom business, they write letters, right, of correspondence to disciples in different communities. And these letters of correspondence contain what we now call the word of God. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it says, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. These guys weren't just coming up with stuff and said, let me write this down and let me write this down. No, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to craft this, the completed message of God to us because of these obedient, appointed apostles. End of the train of thought. 
They had a very unique, special calling and commissioning from the Lord Jesus Christ. They preached, they wrote down the messages of the king of the kingdom, and they were willing to die for his message. We just sang that. By grace we'll preach your gospel till our dying breath. Let your kingdom come. That's what these men did. And when they died, all of what God wanted to communicate about his plan of redemption was complete and sufficient to be effective for every generation ever since. This is the very inspired word of God that a lot of blood was spilled for to produce, starting with the blood of Jesus. And Jesus called them, and they came. And he appointed them, and they were willing to go on his behalf. And here's the, I love this. Here's the names and the nicknames of this unlikely band of remarkably diverse people that make up a team of 12. Marilyn, you had a perfect 10. This is the team of 12, man. This, is, this, this should floor you to see who this king of all kings started the kingdom with. Look at these guys. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, think about this. We won't go through all of them. We will, we will look at some of their history here. But fisherman, tax collector, zealot, a couple vengeful hotheads, a guy that was good with money, and simultaneously a betrayer. We learned that in John chapter 12, verse 6, with Judas. This is a wild bunch. This is a team of ragtags. Rejects from society, normal, ordinary people. That's who he started the kingdom with. They're eclectic. They're a varied group of people with, listen, with opposite ends of the spectrum of personalities and preferences. And they were all unified because Jesus is simply that compelling and amazing. They cared more about Jesus than they cared about their own unique personal preferences or their own personalities. No matter where they were on the spectrum, Jesus was that amazing to them that they're like, okay, we can get along. So more important than our experience of Christ was the Christ of their and our experience it's not about us, it's about him. And he, we want to respond to his call and then do what he calls us to do. He was Lord. And he was worthy to be obeyed and praised by this diverse grouping of people. They were all so different and yet they're all still unified and willing to live their lives on mission to fulfill the purpose of his mission, not theirs. Not theirs. 
This, that, that's amazing to me. They're so different. Most of us would not start a group with this diversity. <laughs> and then I love this. I love that Jesus gives some of these guys nicknames, right? To give someone a nickname assumes that there's a relationship because of some sort of shared experience. Like maybe there's some inside joke here. Remember the time when, right? Nicknames can be endearing to people. And they can give security and bring security to a relationship. They showcase the personality and the relatability of Jesus, Sometimes we see like videos of Jesus and he's just such a, so stoic and stiff. He's unrelatable. That's one of the reasons why I like watching The Chosen is they, they give him a personality, right? Think about this. Hey, Peter, we'll call you Rock. Rocky, right? What do we know about Rock? He crumbles pretty quick, doesn't he? How about James, John? Hey, we'll call you Sons of thunder. They're a couple hotheads, right? We can even detect a hint of sarcasm here, right? Like Jesus has a personality, and he's relatable, and he creates these nicknames with these guys that, that assume the relationship and shared common experiences. But these guys were appointed, and they were willing to go And Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses. You will be my martus, my martyrs. So I want to take a few moments to now individualize each one of these guys. I want to look at each one of their stories that's told throughout church history. I want us to see their their enduring devotion to actually be people that actually were sent out by King Jesus for official kingdom business. I used to work with a colleague who was actually a pastor over in Budapest, Hungary. And he had the opportunity to travel throughout Europe a lot. And I remember him explaining this to our church back in Chicago. These are statues of the Basilica um, in, uh, in in a town in Rome And this is what some of the early church fathers tell us. These are statues of the different apostles. And I just want to walk us through what we see here. First of all, early church fathers tell us these things. We don't know if they're 100% true, but it seems to stand the test of time of the validity of these stories. But this is Peter. This is a picture of Peter the apostle. His martyrdom was by crucifixion at Rome, but with his head downwards, meaning that he was crucified upside down. Here in the picture here, he's holding the keys of the church. Look at the next one, John, the apostle John, the only one who didn't die a martyr's death, but died on in exile while on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean. And here he's pictured of having a quill in his hand, having written the gospel of John and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. Consider James the Greater. It is told that his martyrdom was by, by being beheaded or pierced through with a sword. Think about Andrew. His martyrdom was by crucifixion. However, he was not bound, or he was not nailed, but he was bound to his cross. 
Philip, his martyrdom is uncertain. They don't know about, much about him. Not much is known about Philip except for his work in Ethiopia because we read about that in the book of Acts, right? And his work in Ethiopia, you know what? There's influence in the Ethiopian church right now. It remains strong to this day because this first apostle went there. Thomas, unique Thomas, his martyrdom was by being pierced through with a spear. And it was said that this took place in Madras, India. So think about this. The one who apparently doubted the most went the furthest with the message. This one, this is a haunting picture for me. The next one, Bartholomew. Often identified, especially in the book of John, as Nathaniel. His martyrdom was most likely by being flayed alive and then crucified with his head downward. Here you can see him holding his own skin in his hand. Matthew, his martyrdom is also uncertain, but given what we already know, he's probably either burned, stoned, beheaded, or some sort of combination. Here, he's pictured as holding his gospel while he's standing on the money that he once collected as a tax collector. Like, that life is done, here's the new life. James the Lesser. His martyrdom was by being thrown from the pinnacle of the temple at Jerusalem. And as if that was not enough, then he was stoned and he was beaten with clubs. Next one, Simon the Zealot. Martyrdom was most likely by being sawn in half. That's why we see him here holding a saw. We read about these things in the book of Hebrews as well. Jude often identified as Thaddeus in the New Testament. His martyrdom was by being bludgeoned and beaten to death. And then Paul, the untimely born apostle, he was likely beheaded by the Romans under Nero. And here, Paul is pictured with a sword in his hand. These men, including Paul, he had the call to Damascus, right? He saw Jesus, the risen Christ, was commissioned. These men were appointed, and then they were willing to go, but they didn't die in vain. But because of their early on effort, the church of Jesus Christ has had a solid foundation with which every disciple ever since has been built upon. These guys were unwavering in their devotion to the degree that we are all benefactors of that devotion today. Thousands of years later. Because they heard his call and they came and then he appointed them and they were willing to go. That's why you and I have heard the gospel. He called and they came. He appointed and they were willing to go. But Mark wants to make sure that we all know this. They were all identified as insane at the time. They're insane. I, I, we sh I showed you the statues. You're like, why would anybody do that? That's what they thought. Look at what Mark says. And then he went home 
and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Swarmed again. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So have you ever been to an overcrowded restaurant? Like, this is, this is so much worse. This is his home. <laughs> this is his home. Mark tells us that the crowd that threatened to crush him earlier on in the chapter was now bustling in and around his house to the extent that they could not even eat. He's a big deal around Capernaum, but guess what? He just went viral And his immediate family thought that he was out of his mind. Actually, I love this. It's only one word in the Greek. It literally says this, for they were saying insane. That's what they were saying. One word, insane. Someone go get him. According to his own family, Jesus is insane. He's deranged. He's lost it. He's delusional. They think that only an insane person would attempt to propagate what they thought was dangerous and treasonous propaganda. It wasn't. It was gospel truth, but they didn't know that yet, and so what do they do? They attempt to seize him. That word is important. That means to see something means to take something out of use of force. I'm going to take you out by use of my force. They wanted to physically apprehend him and overrule him. They're saying, Jesus, you can't do this. Jesus, you you can't do this. You can't do that to these guys. You can't do that to yourself. You're going to throw your life away if you pursue this call to ministry. Wow. Does that ring a bell for any of us here? Maybe you grew up in a family that didn't understand the wonders of the gospel and the wonders of Jesus' love. Maybe you did have a church-going experience growing up, but your family never really followed Jesus. And now that you've come to love Jesus more these days, and you're more serious about giving your life and living your life on purpose for him and his sake, your family kind of thinks you're nuts. Why would you do that? That's hard. That's hard when your immediate family says, like, you're crazy. Jesus had to contend with unbelieving family members too. Kids, whoever is a kid here today, think about this. And we're all kids. I always say that. We all came here via parents, right? But you might be a kid here today. And your parents just don't get what you're all up to with this new Jesus stuff in your life. They might not get it. And that's hard. That is tough. Parents, you might be a parent here today. Get this. You as a parent might be making kingdom-minded decisions for the life of your family 
and your unbelieving kids, or maybe just your spiritually immature ones, might think that you are nuts. If you're a parent who is really trying to attempt to honor King Jesus in this culture with how you parent, there's a really good chance that your kids will sometimes look at you and be frustrated that you won't let them do what other parents are letting their kids do. And it will create tension in your home. That's tough. That's hard. And this is the stuff that Jesus himself can sympathize with you in. There's going to be things that we have to do as followers of Jesus that will just look crazy and cuckoo to the world because they don't conduct their lives by the principles of the kingdom that you and I belong to. That's just the call. That's the way it is. It's just the way it's going to go. And there's a whole bunch that we could apply from that, but I trust that the Spirit will do his work of individual application to each individual heart that he's indwelling here today. But what we want to see is that following Jesus is costly. It is. There's no doubt about it. We saw the statues. And we aren't apostles But the Apostle Paul calls us ambassadors. We're ambassadors of the kingdom. So in that way, God is making his appeal of reconciliation to an unbelieving world through our efforts. So we need to hear the call and come, and we need to take our appointment as ambassadors seriously and be willing to go and share his message of reconciliation, even if everyone around us uses one word to describe us and our behavior Insane. That group is insane. We are children of the kingdom. And that's who God says that we are. And what he says about us defines everything about us. So hear his call and come. Receive an appointment in the kingdom And then be willing to go and do that as his ambassadors, even if everyone else around you thinks that you and I are insane. That's what we see this initial band of followers do. It's the same thing that we're called to today. Let's pray. God, I pray for us as we have to think about these things and as we end our worship gathering with one final worship song that defines who we are as your children. God, I pray that you would help us, that you would be our assistance as we attempt to live our life on mission for you, not our own. We thank you for the diversity that's among us. God, we're all unique. We're all different here. But I pray that we'd all put our preferences aside and embrace the fact that we're all one in Christ and we are children of the kingdom. And being children of the kingdom, I pray that we would find our confidence knowing that you have called us your children and that we would walk in the freedom that you have purchased for us to walk in. And God, I pray that we would follow in your footsteps. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I invite us all to stand and sing with this one final worship song that defines